Section three of British Seabirds by Charles Dixon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two Plovers and Sandpipers Part one. In the present chapter we commence the study of an entirely different class of birds. The gulls are for the most part seen flying in the air or swimming upon the sea, but the plovers and the sandpipers spend the greater part of their time on the ground. Again, gulls, when adult, are remarkably showy birds, but the plovers and allied species are just as inconspicuous. Many of the haunts frequented by gulls are utterly unsuited to the plovers and sandpipers. These principally delight in low sandy coasts, mud flats, slob lands, and salt marshes. Rocks and ranges of cliffs have no attraction for these little feathered runners of the shore. They obtain their food on the shallow margin of the sea, on the sand and shingle, the mud and the ooze, or at low water among the wheat draped stones. They are emphatically beach birds. Such parts of the coast that have little or no beach uncovered at high water, on which they may rest whilst the tide is turning, or at low water on which they can seek for food, are but little frequented by these lumicoline birds. Consequently, we find them much more abundant on the flat eastern coasts of England, and some parts of the southern coasts, with their miles of sand and mud and wide estuaries, than on the much more rock-bound north and west. The plovers, with their allied forms, the sandpipers and snipes, and between which no very pronounced distinction is known to exist, constitute a well-defined group of birds, perhaps on the one hand most closely allied to the gulls, and on the other hand to the bustards. There are more than two hundred species in this group, distributed over most parts of the world, the Limiculae, under which term we include the plovers, sandpipers and their allies, present considerable diversity in the colour of their plumage, and in a great many species this colour varies to an astonishing degree with the season. The most brilliant hues are assumed just prior to the breeding season. The winter plumage is much less conspicuous. To a great extent this colour is protective, the brighter plumage of summer in many species harmonising with the inland haunts the birds then frequent, the duller hues characteristic of winter assimilating with the barer ground, the sands and mudflats. It is worthy of remark that the species which do not present this great diversity in their seasonable change of plumage, such as the snipes and woodcocks, confine themselves to haunts clothed with vegetation all the year round, or, as in the case of the ringed plovers, to bare sands and shingles. In their moulting, the limiculae are most interesting. It is impossible to enter very fully into the details of this function in the present volume, nor is it necessary, for the purpose of this study of marine bird life, to do so. A few of the most salient facts, however, may be mentioned. The young of all limicoline birds are hatched covered with down, and are able to run soon after their breaking from the shell. They consequently spend little time in the nest after they are hatched, this down varies considerably not only in the pattern of the colour, but in the colour itself. Some of these chicks, or young in down, are beautifully striped or spotted, others are sprinkled or dusted with darker or lighter tints than the general colour. In all, however, the colours are eminently protective ones, and harmonise so closely with the hues of surrounding objects that discovery is difficult, more especially so as the chicks possess the habit of crouching motionless to the ground when menaced by danger. The first plumage of the young bird in the present order approaches more or less closely in colour that of the summer plumage of the adult. 
at the beginning of autumn however these bright colours begin to be changed for a dress which resembles the winter plumage of their parents this is not affected however by a moult but by a changing colour of the feathers only the very worn and abraded ones being actually replaced in the spring following these immature birds moult into summer plumage similar to that of the adults although the wing coverts retain their hue characteristic of summer or the breeding season until the next autumn when for the first time these feathers are changed for the grey or brown ones of winter it should here be remarked that the winter coverts of the adults seem only to be moulted in the autumn so that this portion of their plumage is always the same colour after the bird reaches the adult stage of its existence the phenomenon of alteration of colour in the plumage of birds and especially in limicoline species without moulting or an absolute change of the feathers is a profoundly interesting one one of the most remarkable facts in connection with this phenomenon is the restoration of the worn and ragged margins of the feathers in some limicoline species to a perfect condition without a change or moult of the notched and damaged feather schlegel was the first naturalist apparently to discover that this wonderful renovation took place but his statements seem to have been doubted by naturalists fortunately schlegel's opinions have been fully confirmed by herr Gatke and the reader interested in the subject has referred to that great naturalist's remarks thereon in his books on the birds of Helegioland. this seasonal change of colour may be produced both by a moult and by actual transition without cast of feather even in the same bird the restoration of ragged feathers and development of colour upon them may also be progressing at the same time thus the black markings on the head and neck of the golden plover are the result of colour alteration but the black on the breast is attained by moult the colour changes in the sandling the knot the dunlin the red shank and numerous other allied birds are perfectly astonishing in the red shank especially so the profusely barred upper plumage being developed without change of feather and the feathers reacquiring a pristine freshness and perfectness which seem almost incredible without a complete moult comparatively speaking the haunts frequented by limicoline birds during summer or the season of reproduction are not in the strict sense of the term littoral ones but few species breed on the actual coast in our islands they are represented by such birds as the oyster-catcher and the ringed plover the vast majority rear their young in inland localities on moors and downs by the side of rivers streams and lakes in swamps and so on as soon however as the duties of the year are over great numbers of species resort to the sea-coasts where in all districts suited to their requirements they form one of the most characteristic avine features it is amongst birds of this order that the habit of migration is exceptionally pronounced some species journeying every year many thousands of miles between their summer haunts or breeding-grounds and their winter homes or centres of dispersal in the present group of birds the wings are generally long and pointed a form best adapted for prolonged and rapid flight whilst the legs are usually long in some species as for instance the blacked wing stilt exceptionally so enabling the birds to wade through shallows and over soft mud and ooze in some species the feet are semi-webbed as in the avocets in others they are lobed as in the phalaropes the bill varies to an astonishing degree amongst birds of this class and seems specially modified to meet the varying methods by which food is obtained thus we have presented to the decurved bill of the curlew type the recurved bill characteristic amongst others of the avocet or the godwits 
the nearly straight bill of such forms as the oyster-catcher and the phalarope, hard and chisel-like in the former, and finely pointed in the latter. Then, again, the bill in many species is hard and horny, in others it is acutely sensitive, full of delicate nerves, as in the snipe and many others. The bills of the typical plovers differ strikingly from that of the sandpipers and snipes, inasmuch that it tapers from the base to the end of the nasal grove, then swells toward the tip. It is utterly impossible in a work like the present, which only attempts a light sketch of marine bird life on British coasts, to deal adequately with the astonishing amount of variation, even in this single organ of the Limicoline birds. We will, therefore, now proceed to notice the most characteristic species found on the tideways of our islands, either as resident species, as passing migrants, or as winter visitors. It will, perhaps, be most convenient, as well as most interesting, to deal first with those species that are resident on our coasts, as being the most characteristic forms of this group of shorebirds. Oyster Capture During summer, this species, the Homopotus, Ostrolegus of Linnaeus and other systematists, south of the Yorkshire and Lancashire coasts, is decidedly local and rare, but north of those localities it becomes one of the most common and characteristic birds of the shore, even extending to the Shetlands, the wildest of the Hebrides and St Kilda. It is of interest to remark that in some parts of Scotland the oyster catcher drops its marine habits and frequents the banks of rivers and lochs. There is, perhaps, no more conspicuous, no more handsome, no more noisy bird along the coast than the oyster-catcher. It is worthily named sea-pie, its strongly contrasted black and white plumage recalling at once the magpie of the inland fields and woods. The favourite haunts of this species are long stretches of low rocky coast, relieved here and there by patches of shingle and long reaches of sand, broken with quiet bays, creeks and lochs where the large amount of beach is exposed at low water. One may generally find an oyster-catcher about rocky islands. It is also very partial to resting on these, between the tides. Few birds look daintier or prettier than the present species, as it stands motionless on some weed-grown rock, its pied plumage, rich orange-coloured bill, and flesh-pink legs, coming out boldly against the olive-green masses of algae. It is not often, however, that we can approach sufficiently close to see such details. As a rule, the bird rises piping shrilly into the air before it is actually seen, and long before unaided vision can distinguish colours distinctly. During the summer, the oyster-catcher can scarcely be regarded as gregarious, but in winter, when its numbers are increased by migrants from the north, flocks of varying size may be met with. When flushed, the flight of this bird is very erratic and very rapid, performed by quick and regular strokes of the long pointed wings, and perhaps it is now that the colours of the bird are seen to best advantage. The call note is heard most frequently and persistently as the bird hurries away in alarm, or careers about the air overhead, anxious for the safety of its eggs or young. This note cannot readily be confused with that of any other bird upon the coast. It may best be described as a loud shrill, heep, heep, heep. The food of the oyster-catcher is composed of mussels, whelks, limpets, crustaceans, and small fish, together with various tender buds and shoots of marine plants. Its chisel-shaped bill enables it readily to detach limpets from the rocks, or force open the closed valves of the mussel or the cockle. Oyster-catchers often frequent certain spots on the coast to feed, visiting them as soon as the tide admits, with great regularity. It may here be remarked that this bird wades often through the shallows, but never swims, as far as I know, unless wounded. The eggs of the oyster-catcher are laid in May or June, 
in the north a little later than in the south the nesting place is usually a stretch of rough pebbles or a shiningly beach in some quiet bay a low rocky island or even a stack of rocks although oyster catchers cannot be said to breed in colonies like some of the gulls and terns numbers of nests may be found at no great distance apart the nest is simple in the extreme a mere hollow in and round which are neatly arranged flat pebbles and bits of broken shells as a rule several mock nests may be found near to the one containing the eggs these eggs are usually three in number but sometimes four pale buff or brownish buff in ground colour blotched spotted and streaked with blackish brown and grey two distinct types are noticeable one in which the markings are streaky and often form a zone the other in which they are large irregular and distributed over most of the surface as soon as the nest is approached the ever watchful birds rise screaming into the air and should many pairs be breeding in company the din soon becomes general and deafening it is under these circumstances alone that the oyster catcher permits man to approach it closely at all other times it is certainly one of the shyest and wariest of birds on the coast ringed plover with the present species or resident large race the egelitis hyticula major of tristram as we should more correctly describe it we reach the true plovers the ringed plover is one of the most widely distributed of our coast birds frequenting all the flat sandy shores of the british islands from the shetlands in the north to the channel islands in the south not only does it haunt the coast but it is found on the banks of rivers and lochs in many inland districts in many places this species is known as ringed dotterel in others its local name is the sandlark the favourite haunts of the ringed plover are the sandy portions of the beach but in autumn and winter this bird frequently visits mud-flats the ringed plover is about the size of a thrush and may be easily recognised by its broad white colour black breast and cheeks brown upper parts and snow-white underparts its actions on the shore are most engaging tripping here and there along the margin of the waters over the wet sand and shingle darting this way and that as some tempting morsel of food is discovered if in autumn or winter this plover will generally be met with in flocks of varying size if in summer in scattered pairs or parties composed of the birds breeding in the immediate neighbourhood ring plovers are most attached to certain haunts and seem to frequent them year by year notwithstanding continued persecution and disturbance it is the same when they are feeding if alarmed they usually ride in a compact bunch fly out to sea a little way then return inshore perhaps passing two or three times up and down before finally alighting again and again may this action be repeated although the flock has a tendency to break up if flushed many times in quick succession and odd birds will fall out or remain skulking amongst the shingle the dense flock or bunch of ringed plovers is a pretty sight the birds fly quickly and wheel and turn with astonishing precision now close to the waves then up in the air above the horizon often persistently uttering their shrill call-note which resembles the syllables to it rapidly repeated occasionally a fair sprinkling of sandlings and dunlins may be observed in the flocks of these species if seriously alarmed the entire flock will mount up high and go off to a distant part of the coast or even divide into several smaller ones each retiring to a different spot but almost invariably they return and reform into a single company on the old familiar sands within an hour or so of their scattered departure the food of this pretty little plover consists of the smaller creatures of the shore such as minute sand-worms shrimps sand-hoppers tiny mollusks and insects 
that this species occasionally eats vegetable substances i have assured myself by repeated dissection although the ring plover appears only to rear one brood in the year its laying season is prolonged from the middle of april to the beginning of june early in april the winter flocks begin to disband and the birds to disperse over their breeding places many pairs may be found breeding on one large stretch of sand in a suitable district some individuals seek an inland site for their eggs on the bank of a stream or lake but the majority prefer the sands of the seashore occasionally the nest has been discovered remote from water this plover makes no nest the eggs sometimes are laid in a hollow of the sand but just as frequently on the level surface the fine sand is always preferred to the shingle as the eggs best harmonize in appearance with it their fine markings becoming more conspicuous on the coarser surface the bird sits lightly indeed it is most exceptional to see one rise from its eggs unless the spot has been previously marked when disturbed the birds exhibit but little outward manifestation of alarm they may be seen running to and fro about the sand but their behaviour is very different from that of the lesser terns which often nest on the same sands the eggs of the ringed plover are always four in number very puriform in shape and invariably laid with the pointed ends turned inwards they are large in proportion to the bird and pale buff or stone colour sparingly spotted and speckled with blackish brown and ink grey during may and june a smaller and darker race of ringed plover passes along our coast to breed further north appearing on the return journey during august september and october there is some evidence to suggest that this bird breeds sparingly on the coasts of kent and sussex kentish plover this species the aegialatis cantiana of ornithologists is one of the most local of british birds stragglers have been obtained here and there along the coastline between yorkshire and cornwall but its only known nesting places are on certain parts of the coasts of kent and sussex it is now nearly a century ago since this plover was first made known to science by lowen who figured it in his birds of great britain and by latham who described and named it in the supplement to his great work the index ornithologicus from examples which have been obtained on the kentish shingles by mr boys of sandwich the kentish plover bears a superficial resemblance to the ringed plover but may readily be distinguished by a broken pectoral band represented by a dark patch on each side of the breast and the reddish-brown nape and crown unlike the preceding species this plover is a summer migrant only to the british coasts arriving towards the end of april or early in may and departing again with its young in august or september odd birds however have been met with during winter kentish plover does not differ in its habits in any marked degree from the ringed plover and frequents very similar localities stretches of sand and shingle like that bird it also gathers into small parties during summer but in our islands where its numbers are limited we more usually find it in isolated pairs on various suitable parts of the shore it possesses the same restless habits running about the wet shying sands and shingles close to the breaking waves in quest of the sand hoppers crustaceans worms and other small marine creatures on which it feeds it cannot be regarded as a shy bird permitting a somewhat close approach and manifesting little fear or alarm even when its breeding grounds are invaded by man its alarm note may be described as a shrill pitcher the usual call is a clear loud whit which during the love season is frequently uttered so quickly as to form a short of trill as a cock-bird swords and flies round and round above his mate the ringed plover utters a very similar trill during the pairing season the kentish plover rears but one brood during the summer and preparations are made for this towards the end of may 
it is not improbable that this plover pairs for life seeing that the same localities are visited year by year for nesting purposes it makes no nest the eggs being laid in little hollow amongst the coarser sand or the shingle or on a drift of dry seaweed or other shore debris the eggs are usually three but occasionally four in number and are pale or dark buff in ground colour blotched scratched and spotted with blackish brown on slate grey as is the almost invariable custom with birds breeding on bare plains and beaches and whose eggs are protectively coloured the kentish plover sits lightly rises from her eggs as soon as danger is discovered and evinces but little outward anxiety for their safety though in some instances a feigning of lameness has been resorted to especially when the eggs have been on the point of hatching the young birds and their parents form a family party during the autumn and apparently migrate southwards in close company with the present species we exhaust the number of limicoline birds that rest upon the shore in the british islands all the other species that make our sands and mud flats their winter home or their place of call during their winter and autumn migrations breed away from the actual beach on marshes and moors and uplands or do not rear their young at all within our area closely associated with most of these birds are the fascinating problems of migration we miss the feathered hosts from sand and mud flat as the spring advances we note the fleeting appearance of others along the shore bound to a far away northern haunts and then long before the first faint signs of autumn are apparent these migrant birds begin to return and imbue the wild lone stoplands and shingles with life to and fro with each occurring spring and autumn the stream of avine life flows and ebbs by day and by night the feathery tide presses on calling forth wonder from the least observant filling more thoughtful minds with the complexity and the mystery of it all we have not space to deal here with this great avine movement but content with this passing allusion to it pass on to a study of, of the other feather dwellers by the sea conf page two hundred eighty one it is rather remarkable how few species of limicoline birds breed on the british coastline and a single sandpiper nor snipe does so and but two or three plovers as we have already seen so far as summer is concerned these wading birds cannot be regarded as a very remarkable feature of avine life upon the coast and it is doubtless because they are so little known to the majority of seaside visitors that they appeal so much less to the popular mind than the more ubiquitous gulls but from september onwards to the following spring plovers and sandpipers are the most prominent characteristics of all the more low-lying coasts we will briefly glance at those species that not only frequent such situations regularly every season but occur in sufficient numbers to place them beyond the category of abnormal visitors or storm-driven wanderers from their natural haunts golden plover this species charadrius pluvialis of ornithologists is from the regularity of its appearance and its great abundance known almost everywhere as the plover of the coast it derives its trivial name from the profusion of golden yellow drop-like spots which adorn its upper plumage and may always be distinguished from allied species by its barred tail feathers and white auxiliaries large flights of golden plover begin to appear on our low-lying coasts in september and through october and november the number steadily increases many of these birds simply pass along our shoreline to haunts of the mediterranean basin and only linger thereon through the winter one of the great haunts of this plover is along the shores of the wash that vast area of mud and sand and salt marsh which extends for miles in drear monotony only enlivened and made endurable by the hordes of wild fowl that congregate upon its treacherous surface here at the end of october 
or during the first week in november the migration of the golden plover can be observed in all its strength day after day night after night i have remarked the passage of this bird in almost one unbroken stream flock succeeding flock so quickly as to form a nearly continuous throng upon the sands this plover often associates with dunlins grey plovers lapwings and other waders great numbers are or used to be shot or netted in this district and sent to inland markets for their flesh is justly esteemed for its delicacy ranked by some as second only to that of the woodcock golden plovers feed and move about a good deal at night especially by moonlight their food during the winter at least consists of sandworms and hoppers mollusks small seeds and so on the whistle of this plover is one of the most attractive sounds of the mud-flats and salt marshes it may under suitable atmospheric conditions be heard for a long distance across the waters and sounds something like clee occasionally prolonged into clee this note is uttered both while the bird is on the ground and in the air in the pairing season it is run out into a trill the movements of the golden plover during winter are largely regulated by the weather and i have known it desert a district entirely or become very restless and unsettled just previous to a storm in spring the sea-coasts are deserted and the golden plover retires to its breeding grounds these in our islands are situated on the upland moors and mountain plateau the nest invariably made upon the ground is often placed on a hassock of coarse herbage or on a tuft of cotton grass and consists nearly of a hollow lined with a few bits of withered grass or dead leaves the eggs are four in number buff blotched and spotted with various shades of brown and more sparingly with grey they are much richer and yellower in appearance than those of the lapwing otherwise closely resemble them grey plover this handsome bird generically separated by many ornithologists from the preceding on account of its possessing a minute and entirely functionless hind toe is the vanellus helveticus of brisson and the charadrius helveticus of writers who ignore the genus squatarola founded by leech on the above-named trivial and all things considered utterly inadequate character the grey plover is the first species we have considered in the present work that does not breed in the british islands many birds of this species only pass our coast on migration in going to and returning from their arctic breeding-grounds but a fair number linger upon them throughout the winter the grey plover may be readily distinguished from the preceding as well as from all other allied forms by the presence of a rudimentary hind toe and by its black auxiliaries in its seasonal changes of plumage it closely resembles its ally in the adult plumage however it never exhibits any of the yellow drop-like spots on the upper parts so characteristic of that bird in every feather stage of its existence grey plovers begin to arrive on the british coasts as early as in august and the migration continues with increasing strength until october or november such individuals as pass our islands for more southern haunts return along the british coast during may and june during its sojourn with us the grey plover confines itself almost entirely to the mud-flats and salt marshes it does not gather into such large companies as the golden plover but this may be due perhaps to its smaller numbers and is often seen in pairs or small parties whilst odd birds will occasionally attach themselves to flocks of knots and dunlins in its habits generally in its flight and in its food it closely resembles its commoner and better known ally the note uttered whilst the bird lives upon our coasts resembles that of the golden plover 
The breeding grounds of the grey plover are on the tundras and barren grounds in the Arctic regions of the Old and New Worlds, above the limits of forest growth. The nest is always made upon the ground, and is merely a slight hollow, lined with a few scraps of withered herbage. The four eggs very closely resemble those of the lapwing, but are not quite so olive. When once flushed from the nest, the grey plover becomes very wary and restless, and does not return for some time. Should the young be hatched, various alluring antics are indulged in to withdraw attention from them. Lapwing This bird is a typical species of Britain's genus Vanellus, and is known to most naturalists as Vanellus cristatus, or vulgaris. It cannot easily be confused with any other British bird, and is readily identified by its long, conspicuous crest, metallic green, suffused with purple upper parts, and bright chestnut upper and under tail coverts. Further, its appearance in the air, so far as British limicoline birds are concerned, is unique. The curiously rounded wings and deliberate heron-like flight, together with the peculiar note, make the matter of its identification easy to the various tyro in ornithology. The lapwing is also not only the commonest of its order found in Britain, but certainly the most widely dispersed. Nevertheless, it is only during the non-breeding season that the lapwing can fairly be described as a marine bird. From March onwards to the early autumn, it retires to inland moors, pastures, and rough, undrained lands to breed, returning coastwards again when the young are reared, especially from the more exposed and elevated localities. The favourite marine haunts of the green plover, or peewit, as this bird is otherwise called, are rough saltings, mud flats, and slob lands. Sands and shingles it rarely visits, unless when driven to do so by heavy snowfalls, and at all times it prefers ground overgrown with herbage to the bare beaches. As this species presents little difference between summer and winter plumage, means for concealment may have some influence in its choice of haunt. When standing or running on the ground, the lapwing is a very ordinary-looking bird, graceful enough, it is true, but the moment it rises into the air the observer is struck with the singularity of its appearance the broad and rounded wings are unfolded and moved in a slow flapping owl-like manner very often grotesque evolutions are indulged in the bird rising and swooping down again turning and twisting in a most erratic way and all the time persistently uttering the wild mewing plaintive cry that is absolutely characteristic of this plover an unmistakable and unique note among birds it may be expressed on paper as a nasal pee-wit, frequently modulated into wheat-a-wheat, pee-wheat-wheat. As the autumn days draw on, the lapwing becomes more gregarious, often forming into flocks of enormous size, which wander about a good deal as the varying weather affects their supply of food. This, in winter, consists chiefly of worms, scrubs, mollusks, crustaceans, and other small marine creatures. In summer, seeds, shoots of herbage, and various ground fruits and berries are added. The lapwing in its movements on the ground is light and elegant, running and walking well, standing high upon its legs, but it seldom seems to wade, and never, so far as I know, attempts to swim under any normal circumstances. Great numbers of lapwings are killed for the table, but the flesh cannot be compared with that of the golden plover, being not only dark in appearance, but unpleasant in taste, especially after the birds have resided long in littoral haunts. The lapwing at the approach of spring retires inland to breed, visiting for the purpose moors, rough lands, water meadows, pastures and grain fields. The nesting habits of this species are certainly better known than those of any other member of the plover tribe, at least as far as British birds are concerned. Every person at all familiar with the commonest objects of the country knows the nest of the lapwing, 
and must time and again have been amused with the bird's erratic behaviour, as its breeding grounds are invaded by human intruders. The nest is always made upon the ground, generally in a hollow of some kind, often in the footprints of cattle and horses. Sometimes it is cunningly hidden beneath a tuft of rushes or hassock of sedge and grass, whilst the summit of a molehill is not rarely chosen. The hollow is lined with a few bits of the dry and withered surrounding herbage, and in many cases even this slight provision is omitted. The four eggs, five have been recorded, very like pears in shape, are buffish brown or pale olive in ground colour, handsomely blotched and spotted, especially on the larger half, with blackish brown, paler brown and grey. If the flesh of the lapwing is not held in very high repute, its eggs make ample amends for the deficiency. Vast numbers are systematically gathered for the table, and as the birds will replace their stolen eggs again and again, the harvest may be prolonged over several weeks. The first eggs are laid in April, in more northern localities not before May. In the early days of the plover egg season, these commodities frequently realise as much as twelve shillings per dozen, and are a source of profit to many a dweller in country districts. Dogs are sometimes trained to search for them. When the young are hatched, the lapwings displays many curious tricks to lure enemies from them, feigning death or broken wings, or sweeping with loud cries to and fro. Turnstone It is rather a remarkable fact that this species, the Strepsilas interpress of naturalists, does not breed in the British Islands. Some naturalists have suspected that it does so on the Hebrides, and it has been said to nest on the Channel Islands, but no direct proof has yet been obtained. Under exceptional circumstances the turnstone may be met with inland, especially during the season of its migrations, but otherwise it is strictly a coast bird, as much so as the oyster-catcher, and rears its young upon the shore. This somewhat singular bird is met with on the British coasts, most commonly during its passage north or south, comparatively few individuals remaining upon them for the winter. The turnstone cannot readily be confused with any other coast bird, its mottled black and chestnut upper parts, black throat and breast, and white belly being very distinctive. The wings and tail during flight exhibit a good deal of white upon them. Turnstones, chiefly young birds, begin to arrive on the British coasts at the end of July, and the migration of the species continues through August and September. The return passage in spring may be remarked towards the end of April, and lasts for about a month. Mudflats, slob-lands, and salt-marshes are not frequented much by the turnstone. It always prefers the low rocky coasts, and seems specially fond of haunting rocks and islands. Social to a great extent in summer, in winter this bird is more or less gregarious, but many odd individuals attach themselves to parties of other shore-frequenting species. An example now lying before me was shot from the company of the common sandpipers. The turnstone is a restless little creature, ever on the run in quest of food. It may be watched hunting about the beaches or running amongst pebbles. It may be watched hunting about the beaches or running amongst pebbles and over the piles of drifted rubbish that the tide washes up in a long irregular line along the shore. In watching the actions of this bird, the observer cannot fail to remark its singular habit of turning over shells and other objects in quest of the small marine creatures that lurk under them, with its conical-shaped beak, and perhaps occasionally with its breast as well. This peculiarity has gained for the turnstone its trivial name. Not only does it run about the sand and rocks, but it frequently wades and has ever been seen to swim just outside the line of breakers, rising from time to time, flying a little way, and then settling upon the water again. The flight of this bird is not very rapid, and generally taken close to the ground. 
its note is a shrill whistle resembling the syllable keet during the love season this note is run into a rapid trill the food of the turnstone is composed of sandworms crustaceans mollusks and other small marine animals the turnstone changes its haunts but little during the breeding season it rears its young on the beaches or on rocky islets placing its nest amongst the scanty marine herbage beneath the shelter of a tuft of grass or a little bush this is merely a hollow lined with a few bits of dry grass or other vegetation the four eggs are olive green or pale buff in ground colour blotched spotted and clouded with olive brown dark reddish brown and violet grey but one brood is reared in the year and the eggs are laid in june as soon as the young are able to fly the movement south begins the turnstone breeds throughout the northern parts of the near arctic and palearctic regions as far as land is known to extend its nearest breeding station to the british islands are in denmark on some of the baltic islands and in iceland during winter it visits the coasts of almost every part of the world south of the arctic circle phalaropes but three species of the genus phalaropes are known one of them the red-necked phalarope p hyperboreus breeding very sparingly and locally within our limits the other the grey phalarope p folicarius a more or less regular visitor to our coasts in autumn and winter from many points of view the phalaropes are very interesting birds they are distinguished from all other limicoline forms by the structure of the feet which are lobed like those of the coot a peculiarity which induced edwards in seventeen forty one to describe a phalarope as the coot-footed tringer they are by far the most aquatic of the charadridae swimming as readily as gulls or ducks and often going for hundreds of miles out on to the open sea indeed they spend most of their time upon the water only visiting land for any lengthened period during the breeding season there can be little doubt that the grey phalarope is a more abundant visitor to british waters in autumn and winter than is generally supposed it has little reason to visit land at all at such a season unless driven towards it by exceptionally severe weather occasionally however this phalarope has occurred on our coasts in great numbers something similar to the visitations of sand grouse with which doubtless most readers are familiar the autumn of eighteen sixty six is specially famous for a great rush of grey phalaropes to the british seas and coasts and it is estimated that upwards of five hundred were caught of which large number nearly half occurred in sussex the most recent interruption of grey phalaropes was in eighteen eighty six the grey phalaropes lived almost entirely out at sea after the breeding season is over wandering immense distances from land and even accompanying whales for the sake of catching the various small marine creatures disturbed by the blowing of those mighty animals hence to the sailor it is often known as the whale bird so hardy is this little bird that it has been watched swimming out amongst icebergs far from land it swims lightly and buoyantly as a foam fleck with a peculiar bobbing motion of the head but it is not known to dive it apparently flies with reluctance always preferring to swim out of danger its food principally consists of insects but crustaceans worms and scraps of vegetable substances are eaten the call note of this phalarope is described as a shrill wheat but the alarm note heard most frequently during flight is a rapidly repeating bicca bicca the grey phalarope is not known to breed anywhere on continental europe but does so in spitzbergen in iceland greenland and probably throughout all suitable parts of arctic america and asia as far north as land extends in winter it is very widely dispersed even wandering as far as new zealand the grey phalarope is one of those species that change greatly in the colour of their plumage according to season in winter dress the plumage perhaps most familiar to british observers 
the back is grey and the under parts pure white but in summer the whole of the latter are rich bright bay and the feathers of the upper parts are dark brown with pale reddish brown margins in this plumage it is known as the red phalarope another interesting fact is that the female is much more brightly and richly coloured than the male and the latter not only performs the duty of incubating the eggs but takes the greater share in tending upon the young it may thus be inferred that the pairing habits of this phalarope are most singular the female conducting the courtship the grey phalarope remains practically gregarious throughout the year breeding in colonies of varying size its favourite nesting places are beside the marshy pools and lakes on the tundras at no great distance from the arctic ocean the nest is made upon the ground and consists of a mere hollow in the moss or lichen lined with a few dry leaves and grasses the four pyrimiform eggs are pale buff tinged with olive blotched and spotted with a dark brown and paler brown at the nest the old phalaropes are remarkably tame and confiding show little fear of man but when the young are hatched often trying to delude him away by various aseptic antics as soon as the young are sufficiently matured the nesting places are deserted and young and old repair to the sea for the remainder of the year the second british species the red-necked phalarope is scarcely less known to the majority of people than the grey phalarope it seldom visits the land except for breeding purposes and as its nesting places in our area are not only few but in the remotest part of it opportunities for observing its habits are few and fitful it is a summer visitor to certain parts of the outer hebrides to the orkneys and the shetlands outside our limits its range is very extensive it breeds in suitable localities throughout the arctic regions of the new and old worlds above the limits of forest growth in winter it wanders far southwards and is then found on the coasts of europe southern asia mexico and central america like the preceding species it is thoroughly marine in its choice of a haunt but does not appear to wander for such great distances from land it is just as tame and confiding just as social in summer and as gregarious in winter it swims equally as well and buoyantly with the same peculiar bobbing motion whilst on the land it is able to walk and run with ease it exhibits the same reluctance to take wing preferring to retreat from danger by swimming although it flies on occasion quickly and well its food is very similar and its note is a shrill but rather low wheat as professor newton has remarked both this and the preceding species of phalarope are entrancingly interesting in their habits their graceful form their lively coloration and the confidence with which both are familiarly displayed in their breeding quarters can hardly be exaggerated and it is equally a delightful sight to watch these birds gathering their food in the high running surf or when that is done peacefully floating outside the breakers so far as concerns scotland the breeding season of the red-necked phalarope commences in may but in more arctic localities it is deferred until several weeks later it returns with unerring regularity to the old accustomed spots to rear its young these are on the marshy moors beside the pools at no great distance from the sea the nest usually made on the ground in the valley of the Petchora, it has been found in a hassock of coarse grass a foot or more above it is a mere hollow lined with a few scraps of dead grass and rush the four eggs are buff of various shades or pale olive spotted and blotched with amber and blackish brown pale brown and grey as previously remarked the male bird incubates them when disturbed at its breeding grounds the red-necked phalarope slips off the nest and takes refuge in the water manifesting little concern for its safety as soon as the young are sufficiently matured they and their parents resort to the sea moving southwards as autumn advances and for the most part keeping to the water until another nesting season comes round end of section three